0: with another edition of Market Pulse. Once again, I'm joined by Transamerica Asset Management Chief Investment Officer, Tom Wall. Hello, Tom. Hello, Patrick. Tom, this is always one of our favorite conversations to have with you because you just completed the Transamerica 2021 Mid-Year Market Outlook. That's right. Needless to say, there's a lot going on in the markets as we look at it in the second half of 2021 and beyond. Right again. So, Tom, before we delve into a lot of specifics here, and by the way, as always, this is a really thorough, insightful, informative paper. There's so much going on right now in the markets. How, how do you go about synthesizing everything in one report that captures what you think everyone needs to know?
1: Yeah, so it's always an interesting exercise. And whenever you write a complete uh, market outlook, as we do every six months, of course, there will always be certain topics investors will want to know where we stand on the economy, stocks, interest rates credit markets, etc. But I think it's also important to include the overall market environment, what is or should be on the minds of investors in a broader sense. Uh, Where is the true psychology of the markets right now? And if that represents more of a net opportunity or net risk to investors and how they should take that into account.
0: So in this regard, you, you have a section on the overall market environment at the midpoint of this year, and
1: quite a bit has changed in recent months. Correct, Patrick. You you know, we are in the business of continuously looking forward on where economic trends in the markets are going. But sometimes you have to take a step back and assess what has changed in a relatively short period of time. And I think this is one of those times. If you remember, only about six months ago, back in early January, the biggest identifiable risk was, of course, COVID trends which were at absolutely horrifying levels. And that was spilling over into concerns about economic and corporate earnings growth for the year. Uh, Mm -hmm. There were also concerns that Congress might not be able to pass sufficient fiscal spending to help the country get through the second wave of the virus. And, of course, the vaccines had just been approved and had not yet reached the level of national distribution. Lots changed since then. Absolutely. So, if you look at the market environment just in terms of what was concerning investors, what was perceived to be the major risks back when the year began, I mean, it's been a home run, no question about it. The vaccine distribution has far exceeded even the most optimistic estimates from the start of the year, more than half of the U.S. adult population has now been fully vaccinated, and both economic and corporate earnings forecasts have been upgraded considerably. Patrick, we are now looking at a very high probability we successfully complete a total V-shaped recovery, both in terms of U.S. GDP and S&P 500 operating earnings by the end of calendar year 2021. If you recall, at about this time last year, the consensus thinking was we probably would not get to those points until maybe about 2023. So this is all an incredible recovery uh, that we're seeing
0: right now. Yes, but as you so aptly point out in the opening section of the paper, the reconciliation of those concerns, the COVID trends, the economy, corporate profitability, uncertainty regarding fiscal stimulus, the resolution of those
1: previous market risks and concerns have actually served to create new ones. Uh, he, yes, Patrick, and as we point out, That is one of the great ironies of investing. You have a set of concerns, or as we like to put it, a quote-unquote wall of worry that the market looks to climb. And as those concerns are resolved, those resolutions can create new concerns and new perceived risks. So, So, for example, the vaccines have helped to reopen the economy and growth expectations are much higher now, a good thing, of course. But this higher economic growth and V-shaped recovery, I just mentioned, has now created concerns of higher inflation, something the markets have not had to deal with as a primary risk factor in more than a decade, uh, it's also led to higher long term interest rates, which obviously can affect uh, consumer borrowing and, and costs of capital for businesses. The higher expectations for corporate earnings have, of course, shown up to a large extent in higher stock prices, uh, which have now fueled some concerns about both a potential correction and the notion that stocks uh, have become overvalued. And with uh, the one Point nine trillion trillion in fiscal stimulus passed by Congress this past March, it now looks like future stimulus and in infrastructure spending is going to have to be specifically paid for, and that means the risk of higher taxes potentially impacting the economy and the markets. Mm-hmm. So as the saying goes, Patrick, the market hands out very few hall passes, so to speak. Uh, so we essentially have climbed a big wall of worry this past year or so, and our reward for that is a new wall. Maybe it's not quite as daunting as the wall we were looking at last year, but it's still a force for the markets and investors to deal with. So how do
0: you go about assessing all of this? Sounds like there are a few crosswinds right now.
1: There are. And I believe you have to do your best to net them all out. Uh, So from where we stand right now, we have the expectation of an exceptionally strong uh, economy for at least the remainder of this year, likely to soon eclipse pre-COVID GDP levels. We have extremely strong corporate earnings growth, uh, also positioned to surpass pre-virus records. Uh, we're still unlikely, in my opinion, to see rate hikes by the Fed until 2023. Uh, and there is a lot, a lot, of fiscal stimulus filtering through the system, even before this latest round, we're looking at currently being negotiated uh, by the White House and Congress. So the trade-off here is all of this higher growth and a still friendly monetary policy environment for some of the, for lack of a better term, side effects, if you will, of that higher growth. Those being inflation, a higher long-term interest rates, the prospect of higher federal taxes questions about stock valuations and the threat of a short-term correction. While those are currently nothing to scoff at, I think big picture-wise, given the growth in the economy, corporate earnings, and the still favorable fiscal and monetary policy backdrop, it's a trade-off worth taking. But that said, I think investors still need to watch those concerns I just mentioned.
0: Now, of course, at the top of most people's minds is the U.S. economy, where, as you just said, growth expectations have really increased in recent months.
1: Uh, Yes, Patrick. So we're expecting 7% or better GDP growth for calendar year 2021, and 8% is certainly not out of the question. Mm. In either case, uh, this would officially complete a V-shaped recovery, as we're quite likely to eclipse the pre-pandemic record for real aggregate GDP achieved in 2019. That's a big deal, because... Mm. Not much more than a year ago, there were a lot of forecasts saying we would not reach a full recovery of this magnitude until about 2023. And in moving past that pre-virus level, I think it takes the economy out of recovery and into a true expansionary mode. Now, if we exceed 7%, that will be the highest annual rate of calendar year GDP growth since 1984. If we had 8% growth for the year, certainly not out of the question, but it means that will be the highest annualized calendar year growth in GDP since 1951. Wow, those are some big numbers. What, what's driving most of the growth? We think the momentum on economic growth is being driven by a few catalysts. The vaccines have really... Brighten the light and shorten the tunnel on reopening. So the second half of the year should have a lot of consumer activity as social distancing constraints are lifted and public venues reopen. Uh, there's still about $5 trillion of fiscal stimulus floating through the system and short-term interest rates remain uh, close to zero. And estimates are that compared to this time last year, There could be as much as a few trillion dollars of aggregate additional consumer savings sitting in individual savings accounts. Uh, Remember, a lot of people have received stimulus checks or have gone back to work or have stayed in a work-from-home environment and have had no real avenue to spend money. And all of this could add up to a record amount of pent-up demand to be unleashed into the economy in the second half of this year. Now, Tom, before getting into some of your
0: other specific outlooks you've written about in the paper, I want to get your thoughts on inflation and how that might impact the economic scenario you just mapped out. Inflation is, of course, something the markets have not really been too concerned about over the past several years. But pretty
1: quickly, it's sort of become front and center as a pressing market concern. So in these past few months, we've seen inflation shoot up to both monthly and year-over-year rates, the likes of which we have not seen in decades. Mm -hmm. For example, the latest Consumer Price Index, or CPI report, uh, for May, headline inflation rose 5% annualized, the highest increase since August of 2008, and core CPI rose 3.8%, its highest year-over-year jump since May of 1992. The Fed's preferred measure on inflation, the core personal consumption expenditures, or PCE index, came in for the month at 3.9% for its headline number, the highest since August of 2008, and 3.4% of the core reading, the highest it's been since April of 1992. So this is a big breakthrough. Particularly in light of the fact that over the past decade, inflation has averaged less than 2% annually. Now, now this upshot of inflation has set off some pretty spirited debates pertaining to how much of these new price increases are coming from quote unquote base effects versus last year's suppressed levels of inflation during the historic economic contraction and whether or not these higher levels of inflation we are now seeing will turn out to be transitory and somewhat temporary in nature or reflect a longer-term shift in the inflationary environment and might be more permanent. In terms of the quote-unquote base effects, the argument is that inflation was so low last year. For instance, May of 2020, it annualized at just 1%, one of the lowest months on record. So that makes the rate of change in May of 2021 uh, appear a lot higher in isolation. The mm-hmm. second larger and more complicated debate is whether or not the current rise in inflation is transitory in nature, as the Fed has stated they believe it will be, or if it will be more permanent, perhaps beginning a turn in the longer term cycle we are prone to agree with the transitory perspective in large part uh, due not only to the base effects comparison, but also because a large portion of the price increases in the recent infl- inflation reports seem to be most heavily concentrated in a handful of business areas most sensitive to their reopening, such as used cars, car rentals, hotels, airfares, and restaurants. So mm-hmm. under this scenario, Once the economy begins to normalize toward pre-pandemic type growth rates, the supplier bottlenecks in these more sensitive subsectors of the economy will begin to subside. And then the structural factors previously keeping inflation low for the past 10 10 years or so, uh, such as age demographics and workforce, the globalization of supply chains and technology based distribution channels can once again revert inflation close to the Fed's long-term target of 2%, perhaps, uh, by the early months of 2022. But I do want to emphasize, for the remainder of 2021, monthly inflation reports are likely to keep running a high, and that when all is said and done, we are still sort of in uncharted waters, so to speak. We've simply never had such a sharp recovery off such a steep economic contraction in such a short time frame. So investors will need to watch these inflation trends very closely.
0: Now, now Tom, I think you have some interesting perspective in regard to stocks as well, which I believe you see as continuing to move upward.
1: Yes, I do. I think when you look at the overall environment for stocks in the year ahead and beyond, it continues to look pretty constructive. At the hardest premise, Patrick, is that corporate earnings expectations just seem to keep rising and like GDP also seem to be completing a V-shaped recovery. In fact, S&P operating earnings are on the verge of blowing past their pre-virus record levels from 2019 by the end of this year. Again, big numbers here, Patrick. We're looking at about 35% profits growth in this metric expected for calendar year 2021 versus calendar year 2020. And more importantly, about 16% growth versus the pre-pandemic record back in 2019. On top of that, we have a continuing low interest rate environment and the momentum of fiscal stimulus still moving through the economy. So, Patrick, we do think stocks are positioned to move higher, and we have a year-end 2021 price target in the S&P 500 of 4,600 and a one-year target of 4,800.
0: Okay. A couple of things here, Tommy. You talked about before
1: the risk of
0: a correction,
1: potentially in the 10% range, are you still seeing that as a risk? Yes, a short-term risk. I think there's a fairly high probability we see a short-term correction of maybe about 10% or so in major stock indexes sometime in the next year. But I believe this will be more a result of human nature and history than market fundamentals or valuation. It's only human nature for investors to take profits at some point. And with the S and P 500 having posted total returns of better than 90% since late March of last year, I don't think too many investors will probably feel all that foolish about booking some of those gains uh, uh, at, at this point in time. Personally. I've always tried to keep correction and risk in a historical perspective. Since 1950, the S&P 500 has had 36 sell-offs of more than 10%, with an average time between the end of those corrections and the beginning of new ones of about 18 months of the median time of about one year. So time-wise, it looks like the odds are increasing. And during those past 70 years, there have only been four times the S&P 500 has doubled without a correction, so we're bumping up on that metric too. Okay, But with all that said, Patrick, if we do see a 10% or greater pullback in this environment, I would say there's a strong probability it will prove to be a buying opportunity given the current market environment of stronger than previously expected economic and corporate earnings growth combined with the current low interest rate environment.
0: Stock valuations also seem to keep coming up as a topic of debate as well. I I think a lot of people
1: are starting to call this market expensive right now. Uh, Here's the way I see it right now, Patrick. I think you can make the case that price earnings multiples may look expensive, but overall valuations do not. Yeah, do you want to
0: elaborate on that one?
1: (laughs) Okay. So at the current time, stocks are looking like They might be expensive based on price earnings multiples, such as the S&P 500 trading at about 22 times forward 12-month earning estimates, which on a purely historical comparison might fit into the realm of being classified as expensive. However, I believe stocks should be judged in terms of the expected excess returns they're offering versus longer-term interest rates, specifically U.S. Treasury bonds. Remember, historically speaking, long-term interest rates are still extremely low. And when you make that comparison, specifically looking at the differential between stock earnings yields and longer-term treasury rates on a historical basis, and we go back of more than 50 years on this, we would categorize broader valuations as reasonable to attractively value. Tom, you've talked about the growth versus value
0: opportunities in the market before. How do
1: you see this comparison right now? Uh, yes, we still believe the recent rotation from growth to value stocks could be indicative of a longer-term shift in leadership based in large part on stronger economic trends and likely changes in consumer behavior. I think both growth and value stocks can do well in this environment, but on a relative and comparative basis, I think the environment favors value stocks which, as we know, uh, have a lot of catching up to do based on the past decade.
0: And Tom, I thought a really interesting section of your paper dealt with what you call the post-recession earnings recoveries and what that might mean
1: for stocks. Yes, and I think investors need to really understand – the power stocks can have when they complete earnings recoveries coming out of recessions. We talked about the V-shaped recovery uh, stock earnings are expected to have by year end. Uh, That will signify the point at which corporate earnings exceed in absolute terms their pre-recession peak earnings. If you look at how the S&P 500 has performed over the three-year period after this has happened, Following the past four recessions, the recessions ending in 1982, 1991, 2001, and 2009, when earnings fully recovered, stocks have averaged annualized total returns of about 19% for those next three years. So perhaps it might be best to let history sort of be your friend on this. Now, you also have a section
0: of the paper on interest rates and Federal Reserve monetary policy, something that's also been getting a lot of recent attention, particularly after the Fed's June meeting.
1: Yes. And again, uh, opinions and judgments vary widely here in terms of both what the Fed should do and what they will do. In the firestorm and all this... Is uh, what sort of timetable the Fed is on now in terms of ultimately raising short term interest rates, specifically the Fed funds rate, which they have been holding in a target range of zero to 0.25% since the pandemic first hit in March of last year, and their monthly schedule of open market large scale asset purchases, which they have been holding at $120 billion a month also since March of last year.
0: And there's also a lot of interest, pardon the pun, on when the timing of either or both of those might change.
1: Yes, there is. And first of all, we've been pretty consistent in our belief that there's a high probability, or at least that we believe there's a high probability, the Fed doesn't begin tapering its open market bond purchases until next year, calendar year 2022, and that they will remain or that they will maintain the Fed funds rate at this lower bound of zero into calendar year 2023. And given the expected strength of the economy and corporate earnings, we still see that as a quite market-friendly policy. Okay.
0: Now back to inflation for a moment. Mm-hmm. How, how might continued hot inflation numbers, so to speak, potentially
1: impact Fed policy? Yes, great question, Patrick. The Fed recently increased their expectations on core inflation from 2.4% to 3.4% for calendar year 2021 at their last meeting. Uh, and of course, remember, the Fed has a dual mandate of maximum employment and price stability. So at the end of the day, the official task of keeping inflation in check begins and ends with that. But I think there are a couple of important points here. First is getting back to the debate as to whether whether or not the rising inflation we've recently seen is transitory in nature or more permanent. Chairman Powell has waited on this more than a few times and has been pretty consistent in his view, as have other Fed members, that the recent uptick in consumer prices is looking to them. As though it will prove to be transitory. Uh, second, and this goes back to last August when Chairman Powell announced the Fed's new statement of longer run goals and policy strategy, in which they basically stated that given the persistently low inflation rates over these past several years, uh, they will be prone to let inflation run above their longer term target of 2% for some sustained time frame before taking policy action specifically toward inflation. Okay. So I think both of these lean toward the Fed being thorough and deliberate uh, before taking policy actions based on inflation. But admittedly, you know, there's a lot to play out here. These really are unparalleled historical economic conditions we're experiencing here. And everyone's making the best edu- educated judgment they can, and that includes the Fed. Is there anything else you think investors need
0: to know about regarding the overall interest rate environment?
1: Yes. Two things real quick, Patrick. First is that Chairman Powell and some of his colleagues have talked a lot these past few months about not changing policy until there is evidence of, quote unquote, substantial further progress in the economy. We think that term, substantial further progress, means pretty much one thing. Jobs. Okay. The economy is still more than seven and a half million jobs short of where the labor force was before COVID 19 hit in February of 2020. And raising rates before most of that remaining amount is recovered, in my judgment, is probably something the Fed does not want to do. One more reason I think we probably don't see a rate hike until 2023. Second okay. is Uh, Of course, the Fed only controls short-term rates, and so I think we see longer-term interest rates probably rising in the year ahead. Now, of course, we had a big run in the 10-year Treasury yield from its all-time low last August of just 0.52 percent, all the way up to more than 1.7 percent this past March. Since then, uh, we've come off some. But given the anticipated pace of economic growth and what will likely be more higher inflation reports, even if they do prove to be transient nature, I think we'll probably see the yield curve continue to steepen and the 10-year yield move toward 2 percent, perhaps even modestly higher by year end. However, being that 2% of the 10-year Treasury yield is still historically low, I would not view that as necessarily concerning uh, given the overall environment.
0: Okay, so a lot will be watching on the interest rate and Federal Reserve front of the year ahead. Absolutely. Now, along similar lines, this has been a really tough environment for income-oriented investors. Uh, Very much so. And as you put in the paper, the quest for income remains on full throttle. However, the battle of finding is a tough one right now. Can you expand on that a little bit?
1: Sure. I think one of the most fascinating developments of the market recovery since March of last year has been how much credit spreads have narrowed since the height of the COVID crisis. Uh, Since March of last year, high-yield credit spreads have tightened versus comparable maturity treasuries uh, from just under 11% to, as we speak today, only slightly above 3%, and investment-grade spreads. Have fallen from a high of 4% uh, to about 90 basis points. So high yield is trading at noticeably lower credit spreads than was investment grade at the height of the crisis last year. So the good news is if you bought either high yield or investment grade bonds last year, anytime between, say, the spring and the fall, you've done fantastic. But if you're looking, for yield or total return of the bond markets right now, it's a pretty tough proposition. Uh, you have lower yields by historical standards, the prospect of continued steepening of the yield curve, and it's really hard to make the case, in my judgment, uh, that credit spreads can continue to narrow much further. So, in my opinion, we could be in a quote-unquote uh, happy-to-get-your-coupon as a total return uh, environment for traditional investment-grade uh, high-yield combination portfolios. And on top of all that, we've got 40 years of declining long-term interest rates, which have also served to increase bond durations and heighten interest rate risk. Uh, one way we see for investors to achieve yield and mitigate interest rate risk uh, would be to perhaps combine their traditional investment grade and high-yield bond portfolios with some less traditional income-oriented asset classes, uh, such as floating rate bonds, emerging markets debt, preferred stocks, and even high-dividend common stocks, mm-hmm. which could help to create higher yields with lower durations and less interest rate risk. But we think this sort of mix could be a good diversifier and or perhaps a satellite approach to traditional high yield investment grade portfolios. Mm -hmm. But uh, no question, it's a very tough environment uh, for yield oriented investors right now. No easy answers, uh, but perhaps uh, some outside the box portfolio structuring could be advantageous.
0: So, Tom, another area you spent some time on in the paper is potential tax changes that you could see in the year ahead, and how that might impact the economy and the markets.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I think the prospect of higher federal taxes potentially coming as being directly linked funding sources for a few more trillion dollars or so of infrastructure spending legislation is going to be one of the really big dramas uh, during the second half of 2021, both in economic and political terms. Now, these potential tax provisions in the proposed legislation drafted by the White House Uh, coincide pretty closely with the Biden tax plan as it was originally communicated during his campaign last summer. And they include uh, provisions such as raising the marginal tax rate on corporations from 21% to somewhere between 25% and 28%, Mm -hmm. instituting a 15% minimum corporate book income tax on certain corporations, raising the maximum individual tax rate, from 37% to 39.6%, raising the maximum capital gains rate on individuals from 24% to 43% at the $1 million threshold, and eliminating uh, the step-up in basis tax treatment on inherited assets at the $1 million threshold. So they are nothing to sneeze at and basically repeal a lot of the Trump tax cuts from 2017. And I think you could see an adverse reaction in the market if they were to be passed in their entirety. Specifically, there are estimates out there that these tax hikes in their entirety and in isolation could impact uh, GDP growth by as much as uh, 1% to 2% negatively on an annualized basis. And of course, going from a 21% corporate rate to a 25 or 28% rate for, uh, will, by definition, negatively impact corporate earnings in and of themselves. I do think the step-up in basis on inherited assets could have reverberations going out several years because it will definitely affect transfer of wealth expectations between generations. I think the impact of a capital gains rate on individuals with higher incomes could be mitigated by the fact that about 75% of U.S. stock ownership is currently believed to be in tax-deferred retirement plans, uh, except for this sort of treatment. So there is a lot yet to be determined here. Most importantly, whether there can be a bipartisan compromise, or Democrats wind up taking spending legislation uh, through the reconciliation process, or both perhaps occurring, because they're not mutually exclusive. But if these tax increases are passed close to their entirety, uh, there, there could be a negative incremental impact on the economy and the markets, all else being equal, of course. And that would have to be netted out against everything else going on. So a lot more to follow here as potential tax changes will be an important market development to keep an eye on as the year moves
0: forward. And, Tom, you also have a section on international stocks, in which you appear to be pretty constructive on in terms of both developed and emerging markets.
1: Yes. Now, Patrick, as we know, both international developed and emerging market stocks have markedly underperformed U.S. stocks over the past decade. I think a major reason for this has been that global economic growth has been slowing even before the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, from better than 4% back in 2011 to less than 3%, even before the virus, of course, created a global recession in 2020. Now, I think we could be looking at a pretty strong global economic recovery for the remainder of 2021 and into next year. The International Monetary Fund, or, or IMF, is forecasting global growth at 6% for calendar year 2021, and a better than 4% for calendar year 2022, both of which would represent the highest rate of growth uh, in over 10 years. So we have a directional reversal from negative to positive growth, and potentially a multi-year high in the absolute rate of year-over-year growth. Uh, and the IMF has the calendar year 2021 a growth rate broken up by just under 7% for emerging markets and just over 5%. For developed regions so when you take this sort of a potential improvement into account given the degree to which international stocks have underperformed u.s stocks over the past decade they could be setting up pretty well here
0: yeah it could be now tom we've talked so much over the past year about COVID 19 from medical societal economic and market perspectives i would be remiss not to say You have a section on the vaccines and their impact on COVID case trends, the economy, and
1: the markets as well. Yes, thank you, Patrick. As you just said, we've spoken so much about COVID in our previous conversations. And I wanted to make sure in this paper we devoted a section to cover precisely what these improving case and recovery trends mean for the economy and the markets. I mean, it's almost immeasurable. Uh, No question, of course, we still have a long way to go to fully eradicate COVID-19, but we still can't forget that everything we've talked about just now, from the tremendous recovery in the economy to all of the current market opportunities, is only possible because of the courageous work done on the front lines by the brave healthcare workers and the brilliant minds of science who developed highly efficacious vaccines under the tightest of time and amidst the highest pressure imaginable. Without them, we would be talking about a completely different world than the one we're in right now.
0: That's well said. Tom, I think that just might be the right note to close on. We've covered a lot here today. The economy, stocks, bonds, uh, interest rates, finding yield, V-shaped recoveries, global growth rates. It's a lot to take in, but I guess that's what market outlooks are meant for. Yes, they are. With that, I just want to encourage everyone listening to download and read Tom's 2021 Major Market Outlook. You can read the start to finish as I did or buy your topic of interest, but either way, I can tell you unequivocally, pretty much no stone is left unturned in this piece. It's available to you at transamerica.com. And Tom, thanks for talking about it with us today. Thank you, Patrick.
2: Investments are subject to market risk, including the loss of principle. Asset classes or investment strategies described may not be suitable for all investors. Past performance does not guarantee future results. The information included in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation for the purchase or sale of any security. This material contains general information only on investment matters. It should not be considered as a comprehensive statement on any matter and should not be relied upon as such. The information does not take into account any investor's investment objectives, particular needs, or financial situation. The value of any investment may fluctuate. This information has been developed by Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated and may incorporate third-party data, text, images, and other content to be deemed reliable. Comments and general market-related projections are based on information available at the time of writing and believed to be accurate, are for informational purposes only, are not intended as individual or specific advice, may not represent the opinions of the entire firm, and may not be relied upon for future investing. Investors are advised to consult with their investment professional about their specific financial needs and goals before making any investment decisions. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused substantial market disruption and dislocation around the world, including the U.S. Economies and financial markets throughout the world are increasingly interconnected economic, financial, or political events, trading and tariff arrangements, terrorism, technology, and data interruptions, natural disasters, and other circumstances in one or more countries or regions could be highly disruptive to and have profound impacts on global economies or markets. Fixed income investing is subject to credit rate risk, interest rate risk, and inflation risk. Credit risk is the risk that the issuer of a bond won't meet their payments. Inflation risk is the risk that inflation could outpace a bond's interest income. Interest rate risk is the risk that fluctuations in interest rates will affect the price of a bond. Investing in floating rate loans may be subject to greater volatility and increased risks. Equities are subject to market risk, meaning that stock prices in general may decline over short or extended periods of time. Investments in global and or international markets involve risks not associated with U.S. markets, such as currency fluctuations, adverse social and political developments, and the relatively small size and lesser liquidity of some markets. These risks may be greater in emerging markets. Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated is an SEC-registered investment advisor. The funds advised and sponsored by Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated include Transamerica Funds, Transamerica Series Trust, and DeltaShares Exchange-traded funds. Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated is an indirect, wholly-owned subsidiary of Aegon NV, an international life insurance, pension, and asset management company. 265616.